Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Mainspring Family Wellness Podcast. I'm Dr. Jenna Flowers. And I'm Kristen Perlmutter. Thank you once again for joining us on our podcast. Today's episode is one for our nonprofit spotlight series, a really important nonprofit. We're going to be talking about the plight of detained immigrants in Orange County with Sabrina Rivera of the Orange County Justice Fund. Yeah, Kristen and I love having a platform to talk about all things family wellness, but also to bring forth subject matters and social issues that aren't, aren't always being talked about. Yeah. So I remember back in 2016 when there was dramatic immigration reform and it was on the news constantly. Um, and, you know, we, we saw so many images of people being detained as they headed into work or being taken from their homes. And, um, you know, the one that really hit, hits me the most was the kids that were separated from their parents and how, you know, our media coverage works, something else comes along and takes over the headlines. And this issue kind of got pushed to the back burner. And it's still there. And the problem yeah. still persists. So we're, we're really grateful to have the opportunity to shine a light on this subject. And one that is an ongoing issue for those in detention and their families. And frankly, one that is happening right here in our backyard in Orange County. And I, I do want to preface that this podcast is not about trying to align with a certain political side. It's to just shine a light on an issue that affects families that are here in Orange County. Yeah, and it's it's really inspiring to hear about organizations like the Orange County Justice Fund that's doing such important work. And um, I really can't wait to hear uh, from Sabrina and hear what she has to share with us. Awesome. Let's get started. This is Mainspring Family Wellness, where transformation takes root. This podcast is for parents pursuing both personal growth and family wellness. We will cover relevant topics that help us reflect, make educated choices, and parent effectively. My name is Kristen Perlmutter. I'm an educator, a philanthropist, and a mother of three who is passionate about personal growth and seeing families at their optimal wellness. And I'm Dr. Jenna Flowers a marriage and family therapist, author of The Conscious Parents Guide to Co-Parenting, speaker, and mother of three. Hi, Sabrina. Hi. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. Can you share with us how you started out at the Orange County Justice Fund? Of course. Uh, well, I was hired last year. I am the organization's first executive director. We're a baby organization. We were founded in 2017. Um, so this year's our fifth year. We're celebrating our fifth year anniversary. Um, so uh, um, yeah, I, I was hired as their first executive director, although I've been a super fan of the organization since it was founded in 2017. Um, it was founded by a collaboration of uh, community leaders, attorneys, law professors, uh, people that completely inspire me in different ways. Um, who work on helping uh, people who are undocumented in the Orange County community. Um, and so they came together uh, to, to find this organization uh, to reach that, that population, um, not really knowing where it was going to head. And because the needs of this population has only become more visible in the last years, um, I think that's how they came about hiring an executive director so they can really um, have somebody to 
right, put, put more of a voice uh, uh, to to the issues that are happening in the and, Orange County community. And what are the major areas of focus that um, the OCJF focuses on? Yeah, so, you know, when we first were founded, um, it was really, you know, collaboration with this group of people who were um, – you know, kind of a traveling group who uh, advocated for different rights of the undocumented population in Orange County. Um, they came together um, first to advocate for um, attorneys to be, you know, uh, uh, appointed uh, for, for families facing deportation, for persons facing deportation. Um, one thing that a lot of people don't know is that people who face deportation in this in the United States are not appointed an attorney. So even children who are facing deportation um, uh, are not appointed a lawyer. And actually, that was my first experience in immigration court as a legal assistant at a nonprofit. Um, my boss was like, hey, Sabrina, do you want to go to immigration court today and help out a family? And I was like, uh, yes, but what? <laughs> what you, I'm not an attorney. Um, and they're like, oh, you don't need to be. You just, you're just going to go accompany and be be a voice, you know, because a lot of the times they can't speak on their behalf because they don't know what to say. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I was like, that's crazy. So anyway, she trained me 10 minutes and I went and turns out I learned that the mom, it was a mom and a daughter and the mom couldn't go to the hearing because she was herself was undocumented, could be subject to arrest. But her child um, was facing deportation because they were arrested at the border. Um, and so I accompanied the child. Um, I was, I think, 20 years old at the time. And how um, old was the child? Uh, they were 13. And so I went up. Uh, to the immigration court, it was my first experience. I was nervous as heck, but I mm-hmm. had to act like I was brave because my boss was watching. Um, <laughs> no, just kidding. But obviously, I realized the the gravity of the situation, and and all it was was a conversation with the judge, who was actually pretty friendly at the time because he he had his docket was just kids facing deportation without a lawyer. So he had to learn how to talk to kids facing deportation without lawyers, without their parents. And that's basically what I did was I, you know, conveyed a message to the judge on behalf of the child. And then I went back and talked to the family. And that was my first exposure. So since then, I've, you know, since you see the darkness of immigration courts where you see children facing deportation without their parents, without a lawyer, um, you know, you can't really unsee that. So and then you started to see a lot more since then. And so that's one of the services we provide is, you know, connecting people to lawyers when they don't have them, um, which is a lot of them. Uh, Orange County has over 12,000 people facing deportation um, and over half of them don't have lawyers. Uh, So we, Orange County Justice Fund, our aim at reaching that population who does not have lawyers because it's harder, right, to fight against your deportation when you don't have a lawyer. And then the big thing that we're known for is our bond fund. Um, So it's kind of like a bail fund, but it's for um, people who are in immigration detention who cannot afford to post their immigration bonds um, uh, and neither can their families. And so they reach out to us and they say, hey, can you post their bond you know, so they can be free and fight their deportation while they're free, while they're at home. And so we usually collaborate with other bond funds um, and we post bond and we help. Um, literally, we go to the L.A. office, the ICE office, post bond with ICE. We coordinate with the family and the loved ones of like what time they're going to be released. We literally take them back. You know, we coordinate to get return back to their home or wherever they're heading to. 
and we follow up with them. So it's something different that we do that other organizations don't do is uh, we actually continue following up with them. And so we've helped liberate 65 people since 2019, um, wow. uh, which is pretty awesome. Over $200,000 given in financial assistance to families in Orange County um, to help reunite them. And um, and then we continue, right? Like, hey, we our goal is to get you out of the system and eventually connected, right, to community that can help you heal um, and get back on track um, and, and actually participate right in our yeah. in our society and educate people on, on the system that's really incredible work you're doing can you tell us a little bit more about the people that are being detained yeah I mean, yeah is that adults as well as children yes or? a lot of people don't know this uh, but it's not a secret uh, our federal government um, since our immigration laws existed has been detaining families that include you know, moms, dads, uncles, grandparents, and children. Um, under, I think if you, I don't know, your audience can probably think, you know, under different administrations, you probably hear different um, ways of how to um, let put a message out, right, to to the rest of the world, like, hey, we are not welcome here. Don't don't come here, or this will happen to you. So you've seen everything. Our federal government has detained people in quote unquote family shelters, um, uh, intake centers, welcome centers for children. Um, but it's but I've worked in all of those uh, centers. I've worked in um, welcome centers for children. I worked at uh, you know uh, actual detention centers, prisons in Arizona, and they're all the same. Uh, they're staffed by the same people. Um, and the goal is, to, you know, for children, obviously, there's, you can't treat children the same way you treat adults, but we're still incarcerating children, either at the border, um, at, at shelters, we call them shelters. Um, and the most recent examples we've seen is um, at the Lom- city of Long Beach, uh, opening up their Long Beach Convention Center uh, to house unaccompanied minors there. So as young as you know, five years old, uh, up to 17 turning 18. And as soon as they turn 18, they release them. Um, okay, run this back for yes, me for a minute. Sorry. Why are five-year-olds without one of their parents? Mm. So some some five-year-olds, so it, it depends, right? Everyone's story is different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've met a lot of former five-year-olds that were in that situation, and stories can range from, you know, my parents are gone. I've never met my parents. I grew up with my aunt and uncle. Under immigration law, it doesn't matter if you see your uncle and your grandfather, whoever, as your parent. Under immigration law, you're an unaccompanied minor. Okay. So that's one side of the spectrum. The other side is the parents, what you see a lot here more in the mainstream media, was, which is parents literally going up to the border with their parents, you know, with the children, usually the mothers, right? And then that's where there's a separation. Usually the federal government separates the unaccom- the kid, puts them in the shelter, and the mom with the, the, the adults. There's different ways they, the federal government has approached them. They, they are like, well, let's just keep them together. That's more humane. And so what mm-hmm. you see a lot, too, is the detention centers where you see children and mothers together, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's just different ways uh, of of how you, the law treats situations with children. And, and it really depends on who they're with when they come into the country, right? Who if, Are they coming on themselves? And you've seen this, right, where, you, you know, very young kids um, – present themselves to the border and they say, like, I have no one. And so the, under the law, we ha- we have to accept those kids. And then uh, we 
process them and and, and and we run background checks and we try to find a loved one or family in the U.S. to to reunite them with. But to be clear, it's not like that, okay, happy story, that's the end. No, 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 no. They are placed in immigration court proceedings, also known as deportation proceedings. So it doesn't matter if you're five years old, right, or whatever, you're still going to face deportation afterwards, right? Um, mm. So, you know, the children may be with their parents, but ultimately are separated because they are not they can't be detained together because one's an adult and one's a children um but i've met many children that was the first thing that i I started working with was children who were unaccompanied and the you know one of the first minors i worked with was actually a a five-year-old um from mexico um who was the granddaughter of farm workers and um very very sweet grandparents and I learned that the parents died of AIDS when she was like very like one year old, and mm-hmm. so the parents sent her on her own up here, made the trip on her own. Um, she's now probably what probably eighteen. Oh my god! Um, but the law allows unaccompanied minors to get green cards, right? Red lawful permanent residents to stay here in the United States. Um, and then that's a whole nother issue we can talk about later, which is, you know, how how does life look like post, you know, entry into the United States, being able to stay here lawfully when a lot of these children didn't have really yeah, you have nothing, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Or um, you really are an, an accompanied minor where you literally have nothing or, you know, your family looks different. Right. Than what you are being taught here in this culture, right? So um, that's where our organization comes in a lot is just following up with the people we have helped uh, get released from detention because they are a, although it's only 65 people compared to the thousands and thousands of people who are impacted every day, um, it's still a, a, a strong sample, right? A reflection of what the rest is going through, mm-hmm. um, which is everyone's having a hard time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're having a hard time uh, with a lot of issues. But n- to top it off, they're also facing deportation and separation from their loved ones and return to a country they, you know, may not be safe from or worse, right? And then we're also talking about a certain segment, though, that of people that were here illegally and then may have already started lives, had jobs, were paying taxes, yes, and then are also being deported as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I met, I've met i met a lot of people in detention um, through my work um, as an attorney um, in Orange County, and I started my work actually working in the three immigration detention centers in Orange County. Um, they no longer exist because of community advocacy because we don't want that. We don't want that in our in our in our backyard. We don't want that, right? People who are separating families right in front of us. Um, and so they're closed now, but I interviewed uh, lots of people over those years. I represented a lot of people as well. Um, and they range, right? Their stories range from, I lived here my whole life. I don't even have a memory of my home country um, to, you know, hey, I was brought here as a child because of my country, Vietnam, <laughs> in the middle of a war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, met a, I was still meeting a lot of those people, and we work actually with a lot of those people because those are the people that are being transferred uh, from criminal custody to ICE custody, um, only to for ICE and our federal government to find out. They already know but they can't deport people back to Vietnam right now, mm-hmm. so they end up releasing them anyway. So it's really a, I would say, a waste of tax dollars um, if they know right that they can't deport people back to their home country. So why detain them? There are other ways right to hold people accountable uh, if the immigration laws 
allow you to. Um, so people like there's stories like that. And then you hear people, mothers who maybe are fleeing domestic violence from their home countries, um, but the law doesn't allow them to get lawful status here. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also seen people who uh, I mean, in Arizona, when I worked there as a law clerk uh, in law school, um, when um, our PAO or PAO was still there. I saw people there that were being deported for broken taillights. They were pulled over by the police. And then they're like, all of a sudden I'm in an ice, I'm an ice, you know, van and I here I am. And I'm like, okay, so you don't have a criminal history? Nope, just here for broken. And so you hear about these stories and you're like, oh no, it's really real. And then it's even worse when you hear about the conditions of the detention centers. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so tell us know. about those yeah. conditions. So again, they they range, right? Um, you know, I worked in three detention centers in Orange County. If we just focus on those, um, it, Irvine um, was very. It was called the farm because it literally was called the. It was a farm, <laughs> so it was very open space. It didn't really look like a prison, except it was. It was a jail. They also jailed. Uh, people there that were for misdemeanor uh, offenses, um, but they also had a contract with ISO. They housed people there together. The conditions um, were very similar to the ones at the Olasi, where they, uh, where it was actually an uh, actual county jail, and they were people were serving time there. Um, I actually worked in there too. So, if you compare those two, you know, very different. The security um, could not touch my clients. Could not, you know, there's. You know, I had to go through a lot of security to be to be able to get in, um, and um, a lot of a lot of the paperwork had to be you know looked through um, to make sure nothing was was happening. Um, and then my clients, a lot of them would say that um, they would get into trouble, and so they would or not into trouble, and they would put them into solitary confinement to separate them. Um, and um, solitary confinement is used as actually as a way to punish people uh, who in criminal custody. Right. And so it was it was really shocking to hear that ICE was using that as a way to keep people safe. And now you're even hearing that today with COVID. Um, when the pandemic hit, ICE's response to keeping people safe was to put them in solitary confinement. Mm-hmm. So if and just to share a little bit more about solitary confinement, it's being placed in a, a really small, small room, maybe one third of this size of this room, which I've seen before. And they put you in there for 23 hours a day. And when they let you out, I'm putting that in quotes because you can't see me, but let you out. It's really a smaller room inside the facility where you can see the sunshine outside. So they don't actually let you go outside. You know, um, and that's to keep them safe. Um, mm-hmm. So people are starting to have a lot of mental health issues while sure. they're inside, along with what is happening. Like, why am I being, you know, w- being isolated? And mm-hmm. then, you know, the closest detention center to Orange County is o- almost 100 miles away. So any Orange County family or lo- if has a loved one that's detained, most likely is going to have to drive over almost 100 miles just to see them. So most yeah. likely they're not going to see a lot of people, right? Yeah. And that's and that's another thing that adds to a lot of the men. So when they're released, a lot of them come out with mental health issues that maybe they didn't come in with, you mm-hmm. know, and, or maybe mm-hmm. that just weren't, you know, visible before they came in, but they definitely were exasperated um, once they were in there. So conditions, not good. And, they, and, and ICE has been sued and is currently being sued um, 
uh, many different friends across the country on the conditions um, uh, of the detention centers. There's been many calls, campaigns to shut down the immigration detention centers because there are reports about how the conditions are worse than criminal custody. And you know, our federal government keeps saying that you know these these people are here on civil violations. Then why are we treating them worse than people who are actually criminals? Well, yeah. con- been convicted, yeah. right, and gone through a system uh, where where we actually cause for punishment, right? I'm curious, Sabrina. I mean, I, these this the situation seems so bleak and kind of never ending. But do you have any? hopeful stories of families, you know, being reunited, children being reunited with their parents. I I can't even imagine what it would be like as a parent to be separated and not have any control over that separation from my child. And I'm just curious if you have any stories to share. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't. No, it's all dark. It's all very, very dark. Um, You know, no one no one loves to no one wants to go see a lawyer because it's going to be fun to see a lawyer, you know. And um, but I, there are happy stories to being an immigration attorney, being an advocate for immigrant rights, and that's hopefully for one them to find peace, right, mm-hmm. and um, find loved ones, uh, safety, freedom to some of them, right, mm-hmm. just freedom to to speak, to to be themselves, um, and not be persecuted for it. And so I've had, um, I can think of one client, um, and she she stands out to me because we had to go literally to trial. And you don't hear a lot of that. You go to immigration court, you go to trial, you go to trial. Mm-hmm. Because usually, you know, um, you, you you know, we, we work something out, right, with the federal government, the judge usually grants. But anyways, this particular client uh, was being detained at Irvine. Um, I was supervising seeing a couple of law students on the case, so we really had a team helping them, and it was a uh, domestic violence survivor um, from El Salvador, Central America, and um, she was married to a military uh, man down there who was very well connected, and um, she had like three, four, four kids with him, came up to the border, uh, passed her credible fear interview, which is uh, when you present yourself at the border back then uh, in that year. Um, And if you are interviewed by an officer, you pass that interview, um, they find that you have a credible fear of being persecuted in your your home country. They'll, They'll allow you to be paroled in, permission to come in, but they'll still detain you so you can present your case in front of a judge. And then if the judge agrees with you, then you can stay. Right. So she passed her credible fear. And then by the time she was transferred to Irvine, um, we met with her and it was the worst story I had ever seen in my life or learned in my life. But she had fought, um, um, uh, you know, her husband in El Salvador in many different ways to get protection for her and her kids. Um, She he nearly killed her several times, hospitalized, called the police. Police would, you know, release him. Um, it never was prosecuted. So she knew family here in the East Coast. And, of course, people, when they leave their countries and leave everything, including their children, they're going to go to where they think there's there's safety, mm-hmm. where there's someone they, that can love them, family. And that's the only place in the United States. If it was Canada, they would have gone to Canada, right? right? But it just happened. It was like you know the East Coast. So by the time we got to them, they to us, um, we she came with um, a lot of medical records, um, and the records um, 
we're missing some stuff, but we got a lot of the records together from El Salvador and police records. And the medical records, what showed was that this man basically tortured her um, with many different ways. I'll spare you the details, but there was there was medical documentation that also backed it up. She had required surgery. Um, the police arrested him um, and then released him. And so when she knew that, that's when she's like, I have to get out of here. Yeah. Um, and so uh, when we presented the case to ICE during that time, ICE was uh, said, no, like, I don't want to stipulate, which is agreed to granting her asylum. Um, and I realized at that time that the federal government was getting ready to fight um, that protected ground for, for survivors of domestic violence. Um, and it was actually this case, I think, that they were trying to test out because they brought in uh, a heavy hitter attorney with 10 years experience to fight against our law students um, in court. We had an expert testify who had done extensive research in El Salvador um, about survivors, women like our client, being not being able to escape their relationship and wanting to relocate in El Salvador. But El Salvador is like the size of a, of a state here in you know, California. And it's easy to find somebody. She had to testify in court. Um, our client had to testify in court. Um, they were all cross-examined by ICE and basically saying, we don't believe you. <laughs> you don't deserve this. And even if it did happen to you, our federal government doesn't deserve to protect you. Um, the judge disagreed, uh, granted asylum, luckily. And, and the judge actually said on record, this is one of the worst cases I've seen in my life. <laughs> Oh, wow. The details, right, of, of abuse. Um, ICE appealed it. ICE lost. Um, and then I think it was two weeks later, it was announced, the federal government announced that that um, the courts were no longer going to recognize that as a protected ground. So they took away the, that right from judges to grant that wow. to people like our client. It's a matter of AB. Um, and... Um, and it was a big deal. It was a big thing, right? Um, and so now they're still fighting that in court right now uh, to protect more women, more people who are survivors of domestic violence and other violent crimes in their home countries. But it is, you know, something that is is litigated in court. And um, but the victories are pretty sweet. And that one is was pretty sweet because um, two weeks later to know that that the government changed the law and we won. And knowing that the law recognized it, that means there is something there. And um, we're still fighting to get that that right back for them. But then the client called, you know, months later, and she heard the news, too. And she was like, how did you get this for me? She's like, everybody's asking me for your number. And I was like, no, no, it's not me. It's it's It was just the law at the time. And that's what having good legal resources, yeah. right, Connect, be having connected. This woman only found us because... I was volunteering at this legal orientation program at the jail to provide legal education to to people who don't have lawyers. And she was like, you can help me. <laughs> you know, like yeah. she, she just was she thought she was going to lose. Now she's with her kids. Now she because she has asylum. She's able to file a petition to have her kids come lawfully. And I mean, it's just I mean, I got chills because yeah. that's what why we do what we do, because families do have a chance to reunite, but there's so much work after that, you know? Yeah. Like, one part is, yes, getting them here to feel safe, like they're not going to be deported back to their country and face that terrible stuff they faced before. 
now they're safe, right? So I tell them all the time, just make sure you don't lose your green card, become a U.S. citizen, so you're protected. <laughs> you know, the biggest defense is becoming a U.S. citizen, you know? Um, and I've also met a lot of people in de- immigration detention who claim U.S. citizenship. Mm. And we can talk about that in another yeah. episode. But <laughs> that's well, that's I mean, what a thank you for sharing that yeah. story because it does it does give you some hope for people that have been separated and gone through. I mean, just horrible, horrible situations that there is there there can be a, a good ending to to their to their story. And can you tell us how our listeners can get involved with the Orange County Justice Fund, how, how we can help out? Yeah. I mean, there's different ways. You you probably see, right now, I don't know when this episode is going to come out, but you see the 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 situation in Ukraine. Right? Yeah. Yes. Can we talk about that, actually? Yeah. I was waiting for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what are your thoughts with with what's happening there? How much time I, do you have? <laughs> yeah. I even heard yeah. of a, a family, um, you know, in Irvine, actually. That they just they just arrived. Yeah. Um, so I would imagine we're going to see mm-hmm. more Ukrainians here. Yeah. And how is the United States going to handle that? Mm-hmm. And then if I think what I know to be the answer, then I'm I'm going to pull the race card and I want to ask about that. No, we'll see. Yeah, go for it's it. That, oh yeah, well, there, that's a whole. That see might it. be a whole other <laughs> podcast. It might too. be. Right. But, I mean, yeah, what's happening right now is what I would have lo- I would love to see happen all the time with people who experience that kind of hardship um, circumstances in their home countries. What Ukrainians are facing is what I have seen my mm-hmm. whole career in the detention centers. It's just that I'm seeing them in the jails. Right. Not seeing them in Ukraine at the border with Poland, right? But I, I really hope hope one day our country and, um, you know, our, your listeners can, you know, I'm sure a lot of them are already doing this. It's like not just asking how I can help, but then the next step is like, okay, I want to help this way. Because yeah. there's many different ways and there's not a wrong way to do it. If you want to help the people in Irvine, right, who are already here, there's plenty to go around. I mean, let's not do Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. We're still trying to work with reaching um, Afghanistan, the Afghanistan community, who they themselves have struggled, um, you know, and now we're talking about a new population that's vulnerable, and we easily forgot about what Haiti went through, right? Yeah. Easily, and it, they're still fighting to get protection, and so again, I, I would call the, you know, I highlight the law, right? Like, you know, as an attorney, I, I, I nerd out, and it's because. If you know, understand the law, then you're not surprised or shocked at what's happening. And that's mm-hmm. why I'm not surprised or shocked at what's happening. I actually do really like the reaction of the world coming together. I just I think we need to take it one step further and be like, we need to welcome everyone of all shades of color that way from all countries. Um, and unfortunately, our law allows us, our, our federal government at least, to distinguish with groups. So you'll see that some groups are protected under the law and other ones are not, you know. Mm-hmm. And I ask myself all the time why. I know the answer, but like you said, it might be another podcast. What, it, what is the answer? I think it depends who's in power. 
you have people who are in power making decisions about who gets t temporary protective status or other benefits. You know, uh, I don't want to mention any names, but it's like it because it, it doesn't matter. It's who's in power, who is our president, who is who who is the president putting into power into these agencies that are implementing the law on the ground. Who's giving the power to ICE officers to go raid homes? You know, in Orange County, Santa Ana, arresting people at their homes. Who's giving them that? power right it's their boss I mean you just yeah. go up the chain you know and um, I, I I think it also takes education at people in power right sometimes decisions are made because they're like well the law allows us to do this and Haiti unfortunately you know they say Haiti's circumstances is different than what Ukraine is going through they're going through a war they were invaded right mm -hmm. but the narrative, if you, if you get, but it depends which narrative you're listening to, right? Mm -hmm. um, whose narrative are you? Are you listening to the people of Haiti or are you listening to your own circle, right? Of people of power. Are they Haitians that you're listening to? The people who are actually directly impacted? Um, and, you know, I, I've seen um, in the detention centers as well, I, every, I used to come home, I used to tell my partner all the time, like, um, half of the room was filled with people without lawyers. Half of them were from Haiti and half of them were from the other parts of the world. Um, and you would see the differences that you knew that the people from Haiti, all black, you knew that they were not going to get any relief, maybe one or two, because of the law allows us to do that and the, allows the judges to deny all of them relief. And if you look at the numbers, Haitians are deported at way higher rate than any other group. Um, and I ask myself why, and that's because of the people in power. I, am, I answer that for myself, and that's why I'm always, you know, in our organization, we're always confronting people yeah. of power and, like, yeah. why is this happening to your own people, to your residents, to people who live here, who lived here forever? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, and, and it's about giving, provide, empowering also that, that community to give themselves, a, you know, to to speak louder because they do have a voice. They just sometimes aren't given platforms like us, you know, to, to speak on this issue. And sometimes even if they are given platforms, it's can be overwhelming, right? Because uh, they come from a very different world. Um, but yeah. not, maybe not that very different. I mean, actually. we haven't even addressed the mental health issues that must happen for yeah. for the, these families and for, uh, yeah. in particular, yeah. even just the children and detainment, the attachment breaks, the... Yeah. The... PTSD. I mean, it's just it's it's very similar to to circumstances people you know that who are recently released from prison. Yeah. So, um, or literally the people Ukraine right now, like a lot of them are going to suffer from PTSD because sure. of are still a lot sure. right. So it's they're still human. They're they're suffering the same way that maybe a lot of the populations that have suffered similar circumstances are they suffer PTSD, they suffer um, schizophrenia, um, uh, you know, depression, anxiety, um, so many things, right? Mm -hmm. And as an attorney um, who would meet them for the first time in detention and say, hey, I don't work for the federal government, I'm an attorney and everything you tell me will be private and confidential, me and you, and I'm on your side, um, it was shocking to them. Like a lot of them didn't believe me. And, and and that's also very common of people mm -hmm. with mental health issues that have suffered terrible things. It's like, I don't trust anyone. I'm right. in survivor mode, you know. So I had to work 
really hard to, in 15 minutes or less, you know, in a consultation in the detention center to get this person to trust me. And I usually had to crack a joke. or like, I don't like the federal government. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, but it, it was crack <laughs> jokes like that, you know, to like, you know, governments really complicate things, don't they? Or tell me about you, you know, and, and, and it turns out that they're human just like us. They immediately start crying or, you know, they start sharing about their children. Parents, first thing they want to talk about is their yeah. children. And I know that, you know. And I would always like, tell me about your kids. Whew, that would be the, the number one, right? Like, I want my kids here. Where are my kids? Your kids are back home. Let's, let's get you to talk to them. So lots of times I would coordinate those calls. And it's a lot of, it's a lot of, it's a lot of um, trauma, emotions, you know. Yeah, I mean, I feel I feel like I would love to have a a deeper, longer conversation about just you know what the children mm-hmm. um, growing up in a situation like that, the you know, and living with constant fear and upheaval. I I'd love to talk about that and the mental health implications. Um, I mean, it does. I have to be honest. It's like it's there's it's overwhelming, and I just wonder like what the average person, you know, what what can we do? Yeah, well, I'm very lucky because you know my parents um, did the brave thing of coming to this country, um, seeking a better life, and they did it. And they're both U.S. citizens now. Um, and I am a lawyer, and I am an executive director of an organization that literally I get to do what I've always dreamed of since I knew this work existed. So I am so privileged and honored. I, I think what since I recognize my privilege, I, I wanted to use my privilege and superpowers to the maximum. And mm-hmm. that is I love legal education. I love learning. I mm-hmm. love I love learning. And um, I realized a lot of the community that is impacted by detention and deportation has a, a lack of access mm. to um, or no access to legal education or legal empowerment, right, To yeah. about their rights so they can defend themselves. Um, so there's many different ways that people can get involved in, in that process, right? And it's, it depends on, like, what the person's superpower or privilege is, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what are you good at? What mm-hmm. you, brings you joy and then connected to this work? So if, I'll give you an example. Recently, um, we, I, I, we were looking for a volunteer to help us fundraise for our fifth annual fundraiser this year. Hope to see you both there. Uh, <laughs> when is it, Sabrina? It's October 6th. Okay. Um, okay. We'll send you the date, uh, the, the invitation. And, um, and she's like, you know what, Sabrina? I am a speech therapist. That's what I do full time, you know, but I love what you do. I love, you know, your, your, you know, what you're doing. How can I help? And I was like, well, we have our fundraiser. Are you interested in that? And they're like, I am really good at putting together centerpieces. And I was like, awesome. <laughs> Come on in. You know, and then we have other, I have another volunteer that I work with her. She's a grad student at a USC PhD student. And she's like, Sabrina, I don't have a lot of time, but I can proofread your grants Uh-oh. applications. And I was like, yes. And she's a, you know, she's been proofreading, adding to our grant applications in her free time. God bless her. And we've gotten some grants. Nice. So whatever superpower you got out there, talk to me. Um, you know, I'm easily found online and email us and we'll connect and we'll we'll put you to work. You know, there's lots to do out there. To- and, and what is your email? 
<laughs> you can email uh, info at ocjusticefund.org. Um, and just tell us that you heard us here, you, you know, heard about me here or the organization on the show and you're interested in getting more involved. Yeah. Thank you for the work you do. It's, it's really incredible, inspiring, and, um, it's, you've shed a lot of light on this, um, extremely important and, you know, kind of hard to, hard to deal with problem that's right. And like you said, in our backyard. Yeah. So yeah. thank you for that. Thank you for your superpowers. <laughs> thank you for your superpowers. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Okay, so we're sitting here in... Um, I think we're both a little flooded. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a heavy, overwhelming topic, but yet I don't want to ignore it. You know, we shouldn't ignore it, but it's it's a lot to process and even understand. And yet I feel like we have to we have to process this and understand it and help out and be involved. Right. Yeah, I think it's about being consciously aware of what's happening yeah. in our county for for other families. Yeah. Right. It's um there is a marginalized population here that's being handled differently. Yeah. I mean, if our families were in the same predicament, I mean, and set in a isolation room and treated like I've been a a criminal, I can't even imagine. I cannot no. even imagine. And, you know, we, we barely touched on this, and I think it is a longer conversation, but even just the mental health implications and just, I mean, the trauma that these families have been through. And, and the attachment breaks. Yeah. I and mean, how do you how do you repair from these things? Yeah. Well, um, I'm so grateful that we got to hear from Sabrina and learn about the Orange County Justice Fund. Um, I encourage our listeners to learn more about it, to be aware. I think information is power and um, and just be aware. And if, if you feel called to it, help out in some way. Like Sabrina said, we all have something we can offer. Right. I, don't, I mean, clearly we're not going to solve no. deportation and immigration on, on mainspring family wellness. No. Um, but I think we can shine a light on uh, being ethical yeah. about it, being compassionate yes. about it. Yes. And, uh, Showing you know, some empathy. Yeah. I think my other thought, too, is, you know, it's so easy for us to turn off the TV. If we don't want to know more yeah. about what's happening in the Ukraine, or if we don't want to, you know, we just switch the channel or we just turn it off or, you know, and we just carry back on to our own lives. Yeah. And what I appreciate about what we're trying to do is we're trying to say, you know what, let's stay informed. Yes. As families in Orange County, like, let's stay informed about what's actually happening. Yes. Just even two miles away from our own homes. Yes. Yes. And I think you can do that in a healthy way. Um, you know, we don't want anybody to be, you know, overwhelmed or flooded, but just... We also don't want to create complacency and just like we have to, we have to know what's happening and, um, and, and hopefully we're, we're all so fortunate. 
hopefully we can we can do something to help shift and make somebody's life a little bit better just by delivering the information. Well said. And thank you so much to Dan Ballard at Gold Pacific Studios, our wonderful engineer today, Connor. Thanks mm-hmm. so much. And then our great producer, Cindy Murray. So grateful. So grateful. Takes a village. Mm-hmm.